This is The Hindu on Books, a weekly podcast from India's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature. Hello and welcome to The Hindu's On Books podcast. I'm Amit Barua, your host for this episode. My guest is none other than celebrated writer Amitav Ghosh, whose fiction and non-fiction works have influenced several generations of people. Before I ask him questions on his latest work of non-fiction, The Nutmeg's Curse, Parables for a Planet in Crisis, allow me the indulgence to read three seemingly unrelated bits of the book that I found particularly insightful. The first, quote, In 1970, the total volume of international seaborne trade was a little over 2,500 tons. By 2008, that figure had risen to 8.2 billion tons, a 3 million fold increase. In 1973, ships transported 4 million standardized containers. In 2010, that figure had risen to 560 million. Today, 90% of all global trade and 95% of US-bound cargo moves by ship. Unquote. The second extract. Capitalism is, and always has been, a war economy. Repeatedly rescued from collapse by geopolitical conflagrations, as was the case after the Great Depression. Unquote. And the third and last bit, quote, it is a crisis that is all pervasive and omnipresent in which geopolitics, capitalism, climate change and racial, ethnic and religious divides interlock, each amplifying and accelerating the other. In these upheavals, the residues of human history interact with non-human entities and agencies in ways that no one would have thought possible even a few years ago, unquote. Welcome to the Hindus on Books podcast, Amitav. Thank you very much, Amit. It's a great pleasure to be with, uh, speaking with you today. And thank you very much for having me. Amitav, you paint a rather bleak picture of a world hurtling towards greater environmental disasters, a near end of civilization scenario where extraction of resources and inequalities make a living planet a very, very tough proposition. Well, things are not good, Amit. I mean, if you just look around the world, things are really not good. I mean, I try to be optimistic. I try not to be, you know, a predictor of of doom and disaster. Uh, And I think on the whole, even this book is in some ways more optimistic than not. But things are really not good. And just today I saw one of the Pacific Island nations, the president of that nation at COP26 said, you might as well bomb us. And I think that that was a very, very sound statement, in fact, because actually, you know, this planetary crisis is a kind of a war. It is a process of violence, but it's not a conventional war. But as I, the argument I make in my book is that it is precisely a kind of biopolitical war akin to the biopolitical wars of the past. When you speak of the extraction of nutmeg from the Banda Islands and the Jallianwala Bagh, if I might call it that, committed by Dutch colonialists, you appear to be pointing to the continuity of resource extraction and consumption by dominant nations. Uh, That seems to be a process which seems to be very much on. Let me say, first of all, that what happened in the Banda Islands actually has very few precedents in Asia. You know, so the Jallianwala Bagh, I forget the precise number of people who were killed, but it was in the, in the range of, what, a few hundred? But what happened in the Banda 
Yeah, I mean, I just mean it in the sense of uh, a, a colonial atrocity. I, I, I don't mean to be literal. Actually, Amit, I mean, you know, the thing is, uh, what happened in the Banda Islands is, I mean, it's just inconceivable, really. I mean, that the Dutch arrived there in 1621. I mean, to first look at the difference in time. And they basically just eliminated the entire population of the islands. I mean, killing uh, several thousand and enslaving the rest, and all in order to gain control of a resource. Whereas, you know, these other atrocities like Jallianwala Bagh or whatever, are actually, you know, it's a kind of police violence, uh, you know, to put down uh, resistance or protest, whatever it might be. But in the Banda Islands, the violence was completely aimed at a resource, uh, you know, it was uh, the violence was committed in order to gain control of a resource and that's the pattern that we see more and more around the planet you know i think it's a crucial moment in a way where this violence directed at people ultimately also becomes violence directed at at the environment you know you create a process of extraction and a, and these processes of extraction are in fact incredibly violent if you think of, let's say, bauxite mining in the Niamgiri region or something like that, bauxite mining is one of the most, I mean, it's just one of the most violent processes of extraction that there is. In order to make a small amount of aluminum, you basically just destroy an entire mountain and the entire ecosystem that exists there. It's a horrifying thing. Right. You know, to stick to the, the Bandanese people and, you know, you write evocatively about them, you suggest that the colonial massacres by the Dutch actually qualify as genocide. Is this recognition of colonial wrong something successor states uh, should be addressing in your view? You know, genocide is a word that is, I think, often used too loosely. And I was in the early drafts of the book, I very much avoided uh, using that word. But then I had to ask myself, why am I avoiding uh, using this word? What is it that I don't want to say? And so I looked at uh, the Journal of Genocide Studies and so on. And, uh, you know, it's not just me, but several specialists have come to that conclusion that it was a genocide. Uh, genocide is, as I've given the technical definition uh, in the book, it's violence aimed at a particular population or ethnic group. And that is uh, exactly what this was. But also, this particular instance succeeded. You know, they literally succeeded in eliminating the entire population of those islands. Fortunately, a small number of Bandanese managed to escape and they were actually helped by all their neighbors on the other islands nearby. So they escaped to these other islands and they've, on those islands, they have their own settlements and they've thrived, actually. Uh, they've done well. Uh, the Bandanese were uh, very enterprising people. Uh, uh, they created these transoceanic uh, networks of trade and so on. And uh, then one day, you know, they're just, uh, over a period of a few weeks, they're just completely wiped out. It's just a horrifying thing. But we have to remind ourselves that, you know, the same thing was happening at the other end of the planet in the Americas. So the question of, uh, you know, whether these colonial acts 
does this, in your view, I mean, not just the Bandanese, but others also, you see these demands occasionally for apologies or sometimes statements coming from uh, former colonial powers. Do you think this is something which successor states uh, should be addressing? I think it's important, Amit, to remember these histories. If we think of history as something that is, uh, that is worth recalling, we need to recall these aspects of that history. In the case of the, of the Bandanese, that entire history was just completely forgotten and papered over, you know, by various narratives of uh, progress or something like that. I've read uh, pretty much uh, all the literature there is, uh, the Banda Islands, in, uh, at least in English. This massacre is just either not talked about or not referred to for the for the most part. It does need to be remembered, I think. It's very important to remember these because otherwise we end up really with these narratives whereby, you know, colonial violence is fitted into some kind of exculpatory narrative of progress. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it was terrible. They did these terrible things, but they also built railroads. It's the kind of thing which ultimately leads to someone like Manmohan Singh going to Oxford and saying more or less, oh, thank you for having colonized us. It was just such an appalling thing. The, the day I heard him I heard him say that, it made me sick to my stomach. Arundhati Roy at that point uh, uh, did write something about it. And it, it was important that she did uh, because people can't be allowed to get away with these things. We need to remember these things because actually what we discover now is that this kind of colonizing uh, so-called progress has, in fact, it is the mechanism that has brought us into this planetary crisis. Staying with that, I mean, you in your book, you quote Emmanuel Wallerstein as saying that 95% of all written history was that of five nations, Britain, France, the United States, the Germanys, and the Italys. Has this situation dramatically changed in the current period? Aren't the dominant still dominating the writing of history in a sense? <laughs> that's, uh, that's an interesting point. But, you know, again, there's a very important nuance there. Yes, the dominant are still uh, dominating the writing of history. If you go to major departments of history in, uh, in the United States, for example, global history is just a very small part of any faculty of history here. These faculties are overwhelmingly dominated by people who are writing uh, about the history of the United States or of, uh, or of Europe, uh, just overwhelmingly dominated. But it's precisely because the history of, let's say, the United States is so closely documented that, in fact, it has made possible a completely uh, alternative uh, telling of these histories. So here in the United States, for example, the 1619 project uh, really absolutely uh, uh, revolutionized the ways in which uh, uh, people have conventionally understood uh, this history. Uh, similarly, there's a book that I'm reading right now by the anthropologist David Graeber, the late David Graeber, sadly, and an archaeologist, uh, David Wengro. The book is called The Dawn of Everything. And again, you know, this is an amazing, amazing book. Uh, which completely rewrites, uh, you know, the history of uh, uh, the Enlightenment. I mean, it shows that, in fact, everything that is presented as the gift of the Enlightenment, such as ideas of freedom, equality, and so on, actually derives from the indigenous American critique uh, of Western culture. 
Uh, that was what planted these ideas at the heart of what's called Western civilization. Uh, I just find it, in fact, actually incredibly thrilling that I am living and writing and reading at a time uh, when really all conventional understandings uh, of these histories uh, are, are being overturned and we are seeing a completely different reality. But it's important not to forget that these uh, rewritings, this, uh, these uh, revolutions in, in, uh, in thought are ultimately being made possible not purely by intellectual movements, but really ultimately by uh, the intervention of the earth itself. I mean, the earth is showing us that uh, these presentations of history, these uh, readings of history as a narrative of progress are actually completely wrong. What we see in the world around us today is uh, completely the opposite of uh, what we've been taught. Abhita, on this point, just as, say, uh, say, the issue of race or of gender, of women's rights, you know, in a sense, it has come to the fore. But the notion of what happened uh, during colonial times and colonialism itself, this is a history which is, uh, you know, 70, 80 years old, 100 years old. Uh, it's not as if it happened 500 years ago. But isn't it that, you know, the entire colonial experience, in a sense, ha- has vanished uh, and is not, uh, you know, visible in the histories that are often written today? Actually, Amit, that is not at all the case. As you know, I've been writing about opium for a long time in my novels, uh, the Ibis Trilogy. And I'm actually uh, writing about opium again now in a, in, in a nonfiction book. So I'm very much engaged with that history. As you know, the British started uh, growing opium in a, on a large scale under the East India Company in the late 18th century onwards, in basically what is, uh, what is now Bihar, or Bihar and Eastern U- uh, UP. This is the Purvanchal region, you know. Now, it's important to remember, I think, that, you know, Bihar, this Purvanchal region was historically the richest, uh, the most culturally fecund, part of the Indian subcontinent. Every major uh, early empire in India came out of the Purvanchal region, uh, Pataliputra, etc. I, I don't need to remind you of that history. Kalidas was from, uh, from this region. So this was, in fact, the most productive part of India. And this was exactly where the British chose to create uh, their, uh, their opium industry with the idea of essentially sending opium to China and to Southeast Asia. Now there have been studies uh, which show that, in fact, and these are recent studies, in fact, the legacy of opium in this region is exactly that of a resource curse. The districts in which opium uh, was grown uh, uh, under the East India Company and later by the British Raj, these districts to this day have much worse indicators than neighboring districts where opium was not grown in terms of school performance, in terms of uh, all other uh, life indicators, these districts to this day have a greater level of uh, uh, social distrust, political violence. Essentially, what this opium industry did, uh, this colonial opium industry did, was to transform the richest, most productive part of the Indian subcontinent into exactly what, (laughs) what we now call the Bimaru states. These states are to this day uh, laboring under the opium resource curse. And this is probably not 
are never going to be reversible, you know, because actually in order to grow opium, the British in these, uh, in, the, in these states also created this incredible sort of machinery of surveillance, large numbers of uh, uh, spies and informers and so on to sort of prevent uh, opium smuggling or opium black marketing. So they, they introduced a level of violence and social distrust into this region, the effects of which linger uh, to this day. You can also read uh, Shashi Tharoor's book on, uh, you know, what uh, colonialism did to this country. But I think we also forget when I was growing up in, in India, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm older than you, you were my student, in fact. When I was growing up, I remember that there was a kind of embarrassment about the princely states, you know, the large princely states, which was whether we speak of uh, Indore or of Mysore or whatever. Uh, we thought uh, we were always told that these places were uh, were despotic, were badly run, and so on and so forth. Now we see that in fact these states actually, on many levels, performed much better than British India. The reason for this uh, this kind of embarrassment about these uh, about these princely states was exactly this: that somehow the whole discourse uh, of nationalism ultimately also brought into the British narrative of progress. What their argument was very often is that we can deliver more progress than you have delivered. In that sense, the, the whole nationalist argument also, in some sense, bought into the colonial narratives of progress, which is why Manmohan Singh went to Oxford and said these things. But in fact, uh, what we see and uh, the effects of those also uh, linger to this day. The Kingdom of Travancore, for, for example, performed incredibly well in terms of uh, literacy and so on. This was also true um, of Indore and of many other places. Of course, there were some badly run states as well. But many states actually performed very well. The rulers of those states, many of them were extremely, in, in that sense, <laughs> progressive in that they wanted um, uh, technology, they wanted education and so on. Uh, we like to think that it's 70 years afterwards because we live in a presentist uh, society. But uh, the effects of these things linger for, for centuries. Uh, time doesn't just erase the past. Time cannot do that. The human past uh, stays with us for a very long time. Amitav, you refer in the Nutmeg's Curse to the subduing of nature and the fact that this concept became, as you call it, a basic tenet of modernity. Do you think it's possible to shed such an outlook uh, in order to build alternative systems? Yes. Is it possible at this particular point? I really don't know. Because, you know, if you look at, say, you take a country like India, largely because of Mahatma Gandhi, but uh, in the years after independence, India was not really an extractivist uh, sort of neocolonial kind of state, uh, which it has now become. I mean, India's middle classes are now... <laughs> cheering on extractivism more enthusiastically than anybody anywhere else. I mean, it's like they've succumbed to this logic of drill, baby, drill at all costs. So it's really hard to see that, uh, you know, there could be any kind of uh, reversal of that. So I think we just have to remind ourselves that, you know, we were not like this in the past. This is something we've recently become. Since COP26 is going on and knowing, you know, the fact that you're so interested in all these issues, 
Do you feel that uh, something might eventually come out of it? Or, uh, you know, I don't know how you look at all these gatherings and the fact that they've been happening for a long time. Uh, yes, uh, they have been uh, happening for a long time and they've delivered very little so far. I mean, the Paris Agreement was much celebrated and the, it was agreed that the rich countries would create a, a fund to help uh, vulnerable countries, a fund of uh, $100 billion. Not even a tenth of that was actually delivered. It's very hard to be, how shall I say, Pollyanna-ish about this entire process. But in relation to this particular meeting, in a sense, it failed even before it began uh, because the presidents of uh, three of the world's most important players in relation to environment were not there. President Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin, uh, Jair Bolsonaro, none of them were there. And these are the countries that actually hold the future uh, in their hands. So already there, you can see a sort of massive devaluation of the process. Uh, we may not like to speak about it, but it's the elephant in the room. I think people are trying to put a happy face on this meeting. And of course, I feel very strongly for the young people who are going there, demonstrating, trying to create a change. But, uh, you know, Greta Thunberg said that this meeting is just uh, all blah, 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 like all the meetings before. And, you know, that's ultimately the thing, that our entire political systems have failed uh, future generations. Our entire political systems are built upon the short term and upon a kind of presentism where all that is taken seriously are, you know, electoral cycles of four years or five years or whatever. And it's this short termism that is really bringing the world deeper and deeper into crisis. It's a very uh, dismaying and dispiriting thing. I have to tell you that, you know, I'm generally quite a sort of optimistic sort of person, but uh, these last few days, uh, it's just so depressing seeing, uh, you know, what's going on there. Uh, Amitav, uh, on a more optimistic note, I mean, your books, uh, both your fiction books and non-fiction books, they, they've really inspired a lot of people to read, write, engage, and so on. So I'm going to ask you a question which has possibly been asked you earlier. I mean, your academic training, uh, you know, which is in sociology, a, a discipline that you taught initially at the Delhi School of Economics. How useful has this training been in, in your writing? Actually, my, my uh, training, such as it was, was in anthropology. And I think it's been very useful in many ways. But so has my, um, my training as a journalist. The reason why I was in the Banda Islands is because in many ways I am like a journalist. I like to go to places and, and see what's happening as it were. Uh, that's my first instinct, uh, really. You know, my first job uh, on leaving college was um, as a journalist at the Indian Express. And I, I think I learned a lot from that. Similarly, you know, this book, most of all, is sort of is a book which engages with history. And, uh, you know, my reading in history has been very important. But ultimately, I think I would not be able to write this book if I were an academic. So although I've had that kind of training, I am not an academic. And I think that shows very much in, in my books. Uh, my books are outside the, uh, the academy. Uh, they're outside those sorts of, uh, the sorts of silos that are built within the academy. I really feel that I would not be able to write as I do 
uh, had I been an, ac uh, an academic. That's interesting to know. So before I let you go, Amitav, uh, so what what is your next book on and what is your next project on? Well, I've, I'm trying to finish this uh, short book on opium, really, and the China trade. And, uh, you know, how profoundly both of these changed India in the 19th and early 20th centuries. And how, in effect, really Indian modernity uh, was shaped by these factors. Amitav Ghosh, thank you very much for talking to the Hindus on Books podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Amit. And thank you for, uh, for having me. Thank you for listening to the Hindu on Books. You can now find the Hindus podcast such as InFocus and Parley on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other major platforms. Write to us with comments and feedback at SOCMED4, S-O-C-M-E-D-4 at the rate thehindu.co.in. 